City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. limits. Okay, City Limits on the air, and uh, it's the uh, fourth Wednesday of the month this month, and we're going to be talking to uh, a number of people today. But um, firstly, uh, Meg Kimber's in the studio. She's, she's having a great job. She's presenting today, but she's also pressing the buttons for us. I love being behind the panel. <laughs> I know, not I know, all the I time, know. but sometimes. And hopefully nothing goes wrong. And if it does, it's not my fault. I just want to I'm say at the top of the show. i here, by the way. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll also pour some tea. My name's Kevin Healy, by the way. But we have got today on the program, we're going to kick off with a discussion around the NDIS. I think we all know there's been a lot of mooted changes Ooh, to it. Gee. And uh, we're going to be talking to Jen Hargraves, who's a researcher at Melbourne, but she's also Jen's also got a disability herself. We spoke to her a couple of years ago. In fact, she did a scholarship and went to Europe and came back and talked about what she'd looked at over there in terms of disability services and things. Mm. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. Um, And um, we're going to be also talking to Helen Dickinson with Jen. Helen's Professor of Public Service Research at at UNSW. And we're going to talk to her as well. And in the second half of the program, we're going to catch up with some of the latest events on energy, etc., with um, Paddy Moriarty, Professor Moriarty out there Mm. at Monash. So... What a show. What a show. What a lineup, seriously. <laughs> now, when you put really it that way, Meg, when you put it that Honestly, way, what a show. I would even listen to this one if I wasn't on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the thing. That, that wasn't the thing to say. <laughs> With Radiothon coming up, we're going to pause some tea and hope you get your head Look, straight. there is Radiothon coming up. We're allowed to flag it a little bit early, right? It's oh, not... it's coming up. Our way, I think it's two Ours weeks today, our actual Radiothon day. 17th of June, middle of June, Yeah. Uh, I'm going to stand up away from the microphone while okay. you chat away. I'm well, I'm going to have a cup of tea. Okay, gosh, this has just become like a Olympic level skill uh, thing with all the barriers and everything. Thanks, That's Kevin. Right. And of course, we're getting as of the last couple of days, it's getting worse in that area, which we should. It is. Yeah. 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 Let's hope Let's it doesn't. But I mean, there's so many places now that people have been, and it's added to this morning all over the place. That gives me a it's a bit dis- disconcerting. The other thing today, I suppose we should, well, we're not supposed we should acknowledge. We definitely should acknowledge. Is today is Sorry Day, of course. And, oh my uh, gosh! Yeah. And uh, again, we. Uh, are we really sorry when you consider the way that yeah. Indigenous people are still living in this country? So, one hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, is this a, a day that it relates to the apology by Kevin Rudd? Is no, no it's, it's just sorry it's day that was there yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, it looks yeah, yeah, it looks very tokenistic, but yeah. at the same time, it's important to recognise and respect the fact that we are on Aboriginal yeah. land and. Yeah, um, that 3CR broadcasts from those lands and, and, yeah, we pay our respects to elders past yep. and present and emerging. So, yeah, That's right. certainly and at 3CR we're more than lip service and do all that we can to support well, Indigenous we, sovereignty. And yeah. we certainly have a number of, you know, a lot of programs that uh, Absolutely. go to those questions. So <clears throat> now the reason for the Radiothon really, I suppose, because you're not getting those sort of opinions anywhere else. Not at all, yep. Um, this is an interesting one, I thought. Um the um, 
because uh, we know that transurban the the problem the problem that's happening at the moment with the western tunnel the 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 uh, tunnel the the tunnel gum at Westgate that mm. they they're currently building and they can't build because they're running all this toxic soil and oh yeah we hope to talk the to North someone West about Link, that right? North uh, yeah. no oh. no it's is it called the North yeah yes I think mm. you're right North mm-hmm. West Link I get these all confused I know they're all the well, same they're all like cardinal directions right. on that's a right. compass yeah, like right. can't they think of can they call <laughs> anyway, one just like anyway that else? that particular one um, we know it, it happened because Transurban put in a an unsolicited tender. And got the job, yeah. um, but then, uh, and so the government's just gone along with it, and they're, they're going to make billions because they get an extension to the City Link um, yep. toll, tollway, etc. Yeah. So, that, so Transurban puts in a, a tender. No one else sees it. The government agrees, and mm. away we go. Now, what's happening elsewhere is that there's been apparently they've set up the Victorian government's given a contract for a mob to check our bridges and uh, put some sort of technology on bridges to indicate how they if they're still okay if they're safe etc okay uh, so and it went to uh, the um, a US photocopier maker called Xerox it's a joint venture between the Victorian government and this Xerox mob mm. but a number of people are complaining that it's terrible that it wasn't put out to tender it, all these things should go to open tender they say and the ones leading the call are Transurban. Oh. <laughs> what do you know? What do you know? Interesting. <laughs> Hard to tell what side of the fence they're on there. Yes, it's a bit difficult, but anyway, that was that. I just thought, of, just thought it worth a mention. Mm. <laughs> not that I suggest there's any hypocrisy in capitalism, of course. No. Oh, hell no. Definitely not. No. Good mm. God, no. Uh, similarly, uh, there's much screaming going on. And this comes, unfortunately, from the CFMEU, the, 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 the Forest Division, about Bunnings. Bunnings has put a ban on selling Victorian timber wow. because of a report that came out that Vic Forest had illegally destroyed an endangered possum habitat. And, huh. uh, they, so they put this on, but the, the unions and the National Party and... Um, they are screaming and yelling. Unfortunately, it's um, it's that division of the union, but uh, mm. they're carrying on. But uh, good luck to Bunnings. And I think it's important to note, like I'm talking about, Vic Forest is sort of seen, many people see it as the body that's supposed to protect and look after the forest, but it's they're actually there. Yeah. It's often actually called mm. um, a um, a forest forester. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it it's there to... Uh, to, to knock the forest over, essentially, mm-hmm. and, and sell uh, it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and it shouldn't, of course. It's um, it's you know, it's 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 wrong that you have a, a body that people consider is supposed to protect forests, whose role, in fact, is to to sell them off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they had to rebrand the Tasmanian one um, after everything. <laughs> Just like change, change the name so that. Yeah, I thought the uh, I thought the forest department there was called Guns, wasn't it? Yeah, it was for a long time, and then when Guns fell down, <laughs> they called it something else. <laughs> right. Okay. Just a final one because we want to go to our guests. We've got a fair bit on today, but uh, just a final one. It's interesting to note that the the uh, Manhattan. 
district attorney has been investigating Donald Trump for a couple of years for criminal investigation. Mm. And just this week, the New York Attorney General's office, which is separate for the Manhattan one, apparently, uh, which has been conducting a criminal... Uh, it's, it's been conducting a civil probe into him, but it's now converted that into a criminal investigation as well. So Interesting. It's really interesting to see what comes out of all this. The, um, <clears throat> the investigation... Um, uh, well, both both probes had overlapped in some areas, including examining whether Mr. Trump or his businesses manipulated the value of assets, inflating them in some cases and minimising them in others to gain favourable loan terms and tax benefits. And one investigation also had included a look at hush money payments paid to women on Mr. Trump's behalf. So mm. um, poor old Donald, things might develop in those areas. Interesting. Well, we've hardly heard anything about him for... Ages and it's been wonderful. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He's in the background because they, every yeah. time the Republicans stop something or or just veto things in in the upper house over there, yeah, um, he gets mentioned because they say, well, they're doing doing his his work at this oh, stage. So he, he still gets mentioned all the time because he's still seen as effectively there's parts of the Republican Party that are very much in his favour mm. and some who want to divorce themselves and so they're having a bit of a rupture over it as well. Interesting times. Yeah. Look, let's take a break and we'll go to our first guest because we've got a lot of the power today.
crossover period at that time though wasn't there between when the managers changed that the new manager got a lot from the one who was leaving yeah yeah I was I was really lucky because um Jeff Swanton who had been here before me had been here for about six and a half years and Jeff was going off to set up a small business but I think there was a six-week handover period which was pretty good really because it was in the lead up to Radiothon which you know is do or die for the station really in terms of its income I was walked through the whole sort of process and the systems that were in place. I was so impressed. It's hard to imagine from an outside point of view just what goes into fundraising when you're a little community station because every broadcaster's involved. So you've got 400-odd people involved. You've got to coordinate that. You've got to you know, encourage people. You've got to give people the resources to be able to do it. You've got to have the systems in place to find the money and get the money and you know, get the money in and bank the money and everything else. Everyone just gets one go, so they have to make it really work on that, that day. So everyone has to be really fired up. So it's, it's a really important. And, and at that stage, it was a six-week preparation, all mapped out, two-week sort of period of time. And and then a very big collapse at the end of it, really, because you were exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm forever grateful for the handover that Jeff gave me. I think I would have struggled otherwise. Yeah, so I think it was it was fantastic. It's Bruce Sprouse as a former manager here. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, on the line now, we've got speaking of not managers and things, we've got um, Jen Hargraves, who's a um, who's a researcher at Melbourne. And we've got, um, when I get a bit of paper... Helen back. Dickinson from the University of New South Wales. <laughs> That's right. Helen's Professor of uh, Social Service Policy, I think it was what's it called. Professor of Public Health. Maybe we should let uh, Helen introduce herself. Morning, Helen. Morning, Jen. <laughs> Sorry, we had some technical I, issues, I, so we're I, a bit I realised my bit of paper wasn't in front of me anymore, which was a bit of a problem. That, that's Kevin Healy's version of a technical problem. <laughs> I, I, can, I can read my own scribble now. It's Professor of Public Service Research. You needn't tell us, Helen. You, you, you now know who you are. <laughs> Which this has got off to a great start. Um, Jen, perhaps you could get us off to a start by we're going to talk about the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, but there's been a number of problems with it lately, or the mooted problems been thrown around. And uh, give us a bit of its background, how it started out, and what it's supposed to be. Yeah, sure, Kevin. Thanks. It's probably good to do that because it's hard to remember for. <laughs> with so much that's been happening with it lately, how it was supposed to be at the start. How we used to have things with disability services used to be pretty much one size fits all. So if you had a disability worker coming into your house to help you at home, it was pretty much decided for you who that worker would be and what what they would do and what they would do and um, when they would even come to your house. The hours were decided for you often. So some leaders in the disability community called for change and that movement became pretty big probably the biggest thing we've seen in the disability sector since deinstitutionalisation. 
And then the Productivity Commission made an economic case for a national disability insurance scheme. So the idea was that if people were better supported, they can be getting qualifications and they can be getting employed. And also in that vision was the idea that people who'd been providing unpaid care, like mothers and wives, could then return to the workforce while their family members received support. So it came from an economic sustainability point of view, and that's what government signed up to. It promised choice and control to people with disabilities, and Helen and I were part of a team of researchers with, um, who had disabilities at the University of Melbourne called Choice Control in the NDIS, and we spoke to people around six years ago who were receiving NDIS services back then, and some were getting flexibility and support they hadn't before. Like, we spoke to one young man who, for the first time, was able to go out at night and then come home late at night and get a support worker to help him into bed. So he was able to choose what time the worker came, which was new for him. But even back then in the scheme's infancy, we could see some warning signs. For example, we see that some, for some people, there was a lot of burden on them to prove they needed support. And also we could see a lack of fairness around who was having a hard time with the NDIS. Good right. summary. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Helen, um, it hasn't, or some people say it hasn't quite lived up to what it was supposed to do in the first place. So your comment on that at this stage? Um, it, well, it hasn't done for some people, but I guess we kind of would expect that to some degree. I mean, it's a huge scheme and it's been rolled out incredibly, incredibly quickly. So, I mean, it's, it, there isn't a, there is a, a similar scheme internationally. It's kind of um, a first of its kind. But when you look at other countries that have gone down a similar sort of track, um, England, for example, went down a, a similar route. But it took them about 30 years to develop such a scheme. And the fact that we've rolled it out in, what you know, six or seven years is amazing. And so you're always going to have these issues that arise. Um, and one of the really nice things about the work that I, Jen and I did a few years ago was we identified a couple of areas where there were um, issues and inequities that had arisen. And actually, a couple of those were, were dealt with. So, you know, we've been picking off some of these issues as, as they've arisen. And some of these will, you know, will need to get sorted out over time in terms of maturity. Um, but the government at the moment has um, picked up on one particular issue where it wants to um, develop some reforms around where what they say is that the scheme isn't fair which we'd agree with, um, there are a number of inequities in it, but they say it's not fair because the amount of funding that you get allocated, they argue, depends on um, the nature of your background and where you live. So they've they've shared some data, um, well, the SHIZM analysis of some data, we've never actually seen this data, um, that suggests that people in richer areas get larger funding packages than those in, in um, poorer areas. So what they're saying here is, socioeconomic background is having an influence on how much support you get and probably not in the way that we'd um, was initially intended with the scheme. Um, and so they're, they're suggesting that um, what's happening there is people who are better off are able to get more evidence to demonstrate that they need support and so they're getting bigger packages as a result. So they want to put a new scheme in place called independent assessments where once you're eligible for the scheme, rather than using um, reports from your um, your doctors or your um, you know your clinicians like your physios and, and, and allied health professionals and stuff, what they'll do is send you to a stranger who you don't know, and they'll assess you for three hours using a series of standardised tools, and from that they'll decide what funding allocation you should get. Um, and there's quite a bit of backlash at the moment to that within the disability community. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, Meg, you were, I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> yes, in, indeed. But on that, I noticed that just before the uh, just before the budget, uh, the prime minister came out, and while they while the budget was throwing corporate welfare around like confetti. He came out and said the future of the NDIS is at stake unless its costs are reined in. And uh, another writer in the Financial Review, a bloke called Tanmir Ahmed, a practising psychiatrist, came up with a feature article again saying there needed to be massive cuts to uh, the cost because the costs were getting out of control. Uh, Comment on that, either of you, both of you? I can jump in and... Uh, um, I think people are finding who are studying other costs are actually following the exact cost projections that the productivity mm. initial reports set out. So this, the, the reports that the scheme was modelled on and the modelling said that if we spend now, we can save later. So I'd sort of question the credibility of what the Prime Minister is putting forward there. I don't know what you think, Helen. I can completely agree with you, Virgin. That's right. And it did, I mean, there's been $13.2 billion put into the forward estimates for the NDIS, creating this picture that the NDIS needs lots of new money because um, it's running out of control. But as Jen says, actually, when you look at it, it's following pretty much um, what the Productivity Commission initially suggested that it would do. Actually, kind of the first um, five or six years, the NDIS underspent quite a bit. That's just because it took longer to roll out than than expected. And also, um, people are... um, what happens when you come onto the scheme at first is it's quite complicated. It takes quite a bit of working out to find services and work out what you want to purchase and what have you. So what you tend to find is that people don't use all of their budgets in their first couple of plans, um, but they get better at using their budgets as, as years go on. So it was always predicted that we would see this increase in funding um, within the scheme. If I wanted to be a real cynic, which I usually mm-hmm. am, um, I would suggest that the government has put aside this large amount of money. I mean, it's important that it's in forward estimates because it isn't actually kind of, um, you know, committed into the scheme as such until it's spent. But I think they've put it in there to scare people and make them think that we need to make really significant cuts to mm. the NDIS. And, and before I was talking about independent assessment, and one of the reasons a lot of people in the disability community are worried about this is because they think that if you are seen by a stranger who, you know, it's impossible to get to know any person, let alone somebody with, um, you know, mm. complex um, disabilities, within three hours, then they're going to get cuts to their budgets. And some of the scare tactics around saying that the NDIS is overspending at the moment um, is to try and force that, that reform through. And as, as Jen says, you know, the whole point of the scheme initially was that, you, you know, you would release economic efficiencies, um, and you would better support people. And so I think it's really important that we challenge that narrative. So, yeah, there's a perception that um, when I'm interested in both of your thoughts on this, that the change from the Labor government that initiated the NDIS into the uh, coalition government that has ended up um, rolling it out has meant that there's a sort of different ideological uh, thrust behind it. Would that would you say that is the case? It seems that's the impression that, that you get on the outside. Perhaps, Jen? I mean, I think one of, yeah. Go ahead, Jen. You go. You go, Helen. <laughs> okay. I, I think one of the things about the NDIS that's really interesting is that it, it, can, it holds in its design 
um, kind of two sorts of um, two sorts of different types of values. So on the one hand, you've got exactly the one that, that Jen was talking about. About you've got it's about human rights. You know, Australia is a, a signatory um, to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, and the signing of that was an, an important force in the NDIS being created. And so you've got this real sense that the NDIS is about. Um, allowing people to fulfill their human rights. But at the same time, it was kind of designed as being a, a big new market within disability services where that wasn't traditionally a really strong kind of private market. And so it's got both those tensions that sit within it. And it was always going to be that in implementation, they would come on into, you know, uh, into contest with each other. It'd be interesting to see which of them won out. And if you say... Um, which is the party who's in who's in power in the in the federal government is a is an important one in shaping that. Although we can't forget also that the NDIS is is co-opted between um, the federal government and between the states and the territories as well. And I think um, this is why we're seeing some of this stuff play out at the moment. Is a number of the states and territories are, are not in favour of these reforms and, and are questioning, um, you know, this narrative around the NDIS overspending. Yeah, that that brings us to um, the the outsourcing position. And in fact, in that article by the practicing psychiatrist, uh, he says uh, that uh, while the vast majority of disability workers are compassionate and competent, several of my patients complain that their support workers are too enthusiastic in promoting services. The system incentivizes an aggressive sales culture akin to a car yard or trading desk. Uh, he, but And that's been one of the criticisms coming from, I know, Bill Shorten, who um, we don't have a great deal of regard for in this program, but nonetheless he, he, he set the system up and he says that there's too many... Um, private contractors and, and contracting out uh, that is is creating if there is a blowout in costs that's where the cost blowout's happening Jen, what's your take on that? Mm, yeah we, we do see there there is records to show that there's a huge amount of costs being spent on contractors and consultants uh, that is true <laughs> yeah <laughs> Helen? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I think there's there's money, yeah, you're right, there's money in the kind of management of the scheme with the consultants and those parts of it, and there's this kind of um, worrying amount, also, although some of that comes out of the fact that, you know, the NDIA was initially designed to have a staff of about 15,000 under the Abbott government that was capped, and so um, the NDIA has a staff of, I think it's about three and a half, four thousand. 4,000 um, somewhere in, in that range. And so it's a lot smaller than it was initially designed to do. So they've had to use, um, you know, consultants and others to, to support some of those sorts of processes. Um, but in terms of, you know, services promoting their own services to um, people who use, you know, who have plans and who use the NDIS, I mean, in a sense, that's kind of the way it was, um, you know, designed and you know, the challenge here is we're not really supporting people um, very well to think about how they make choices around services and supporting them to do some of that work. So um, what people will often say is they don't really know how to make good choices because they've never been supported to do that. And if you think a number of people were transitioned out of the old system, whereas Jen said, really importantly, they were never offered a choice. They were told exactly what they would have. 
and so, to move into a new system where you're told now, well, what do you want? Is a really is a real you know is a cultural shift. It's a really challenging one. So I think you know rather than the answer being let's cut back and let's you know reduce the amount of money that people have to spend because we don't we don't trust them to spend it right. What we need to do is support people better to spend that money more effectively. Because also one of the very real challenges that some people um, have is they've noticed if you don't spend all of your budget it will get taken off you the next year. People will say, well, you don't need that money because you haven't spent all of it. And so I think more effective work with people so they can self-direct their services would release a whole number of, of efficiencies um, that doesn't have to start with cutting people's budgets. Do you, do you think the staff um, working within the NDI sector, is? I'm guessing it's a kind of a mix of uh, private and and state government employees, would that be correct? And and I'm wondering if they have that person-centred approach and the right training to provide that. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) one of the things is um, the state government handed over most of its disability budget and has just finished handing over the last of the services it used to manage. So Mm. it used to manage some group homes, for example. So we no longer have hardly any Victorian... um, government workers in this space anymore. Um, we do have, like Helen said, um, NDIA staff and Quality and Safeguarding Commission staff, and not many of them, <laughs> and then those contractors. Um, and some of, the, some of the senior, senior directors who were in the NDIA have actually moved across and set up some of these big companies that are getting contracts to do the independent assessments as well. Mm. Mm. And Helen, you may have answered this in your last answer, but <clears throat> earlier you said there are inequities that you recognise. What, what are some of those? Oh, so there's, there's, um, there's some about how people use their, their spend, how they use their funds about. Um, you know, one of the challenges is if you don't have a lot of experience in this and you don't have good um, family or, or friend support, it can be sometimes difficult to navigate a really um, bureaucratic type system. But the other one comes in just the availability of services. So um, in a lot of places, we see what the NDIS calls um, thin markets, where there isn't um, enough services being provided so people can choose from them. So in some areas, people are sitting on really long waiting lists to access services, or there aren't services that they want um, there that they can purchase. So um, for some people, that's really problematic because it means they either have to go without services or choose ones that don't quite meet their um, don't quite meet their needs. And so we see these issues are more um, they're, they're more substantial in some areas than in others. So um, I think the last time I looked, um, the amount of of your budget, the utilisation rate that's called. Um, kind of gives a bit of an indication of where we have good markets. And you can see places like East Island have utilisation rates of about 33%. So that means that people are only managing to spend about a third of their budget. Um, and in that case, um, some of the um, regional rurality kind of aspects will play a part in that. But as I say, we see the same thing in, in metro areas. You know, in Melbourne, there are extraordinary kind of waiting lists for some services at the moment as well. Um, there's also you know, issues, particularly for people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, not being able to access the sorts of services that they want. Um, we know there are some real issues for Indigenous Australians um, who experience similar kind of uh, cultural challenges um, 
with with some services, and then there are particular areas around kind of accommodation um, and services around people with um, uh, behaviours of, of concern, kind of personality disorders and things. I mean, one of the really good things about the NDIS is that it's supposed to give people choice, um, but one of the challenges about it is it also gives providers choice. And so, there's some evidence to suggest that where you have people who have challenging behaviours, they're struggling to get. Um, access to services because services want people who are, you know, quite quite slightly easier um, to work with. So, you know, there are a range of different inequities within the within the system, and um, I, you know, it, it, I, I think it's, it seems odd to me that you would start with the ones around funding allocation rather than some of those other ones. Mm. Mm. Um, a question for Jen that I might direct towards Jen uh, here. Um, what do you think yeah. has to change on a broader social level for for services for people living with disabilities to have uh, the 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 right kind of services that they need uh, in terms of how society views disability? Oh, that's a really hard one. I, <laughs> I think we've been looking for a silver bullet around that one for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean. One of the things that we see in a lot of these decision-making processes at the Productivity Commission and in government um, is that we don't have much representation of people with disabilities. So um, more people with disabilities around decision-making tables. Um, for example, a consultation process was, was done with people with disabilities around independent assessments, but um, it was a small consultation and I think what what people fed into that consultation wasn't heard, mm. so there's, there's not that um, there's not that social power to be um, impacting the way services are designed at the moment. Yeah, mm. and I think um, I think a question for all of us is a little bit around how uh, these facets of our lives where we need support are being turned into unit costs, mm. and our humanities are sort of being split into individual budgets. So how, how do we maintain collectivism in that environment and meet each other as humans and come together to fight for our rights? Um, because, you know, there's not, there's not often money in people's individual packages to do those things. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And if I might, I mean, I they're all really, really important comments. The other thing that I would add to that is, um, you know, we need to start some of the, the stuff young. And one of the issues is we've seen in Australia the number of... Um, children with disabilities being educated in specialist schools has increased over the last decade mm. rather than decreased. And I guess, you know, if you don't go to school with or you don't ever meet somebody with a disability and you don't engage when when you're younger, then it becomes something that's like, you know, something that's scary or something that's different and not something that you do as a, as a matter of course. And so I think thinking about um, segregated education mm. and whether that's the best way to go could be a, a really um, important feature in, in improving kind of some of that cohesion future. Mm. Yeah, we're going to have to wind up and get to our next guest, but just to finish, and it's slightly different, but it's related, uh, I noticed the state budget last week, Jen, um, has been criticised because it really hasn't given enough money to update public transport to make it totally yeah. accessible, as supposed to by the end of next year, I think it is, but uh, it looks like it's still dragging behind. Oh, that's so disappointing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, well, Kevin, I don't know what to say. <laughs> we're, 
We need to keep holding our breath. On, on radio, I don't know what to say, sort of great answer, Katrina. <laughs> no. uh, we need to keep holding our breath and campaigning for accessible transport. I mean, one of the things that give us, gives us hope is we have seen campaigning start to make a difference around the building code at a national level, which mm. is a big deal. So, yeah, for the people who work, on, work with 3CR and around the place, keep up the campaigning around public transport. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I, you know, when I come home from Vic Market, I get the tram round to Royal Park Station, and as you approach the Royal Park stop, they say this is the last accessible stop, and you think, mm. well, it's a long way in a wheelchair from there to West Coburg. Mm. Yeah, and how if we if we're thinking of the Productivity Commission talking about getting people to study and to school and to mm. workplaces, how is public transport playing a role in that? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just public transport for some people, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is indeed. OK, yeah. look, Jen and Helen, look, we're going to have to close here, but thanks for your time this morning, and um, we, we should do it again because I think there's still plenty to I talk about. I have a lot more questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, both of you. OK, Bye. thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. OK, thank you. That was Jen Hargraves, who's a researcher up at Melbourne. She's a woman who has disabilities herself, and Helen Dickinson, who's professor of, I've got it in front of me now, of public service <laughs> research at the UNSW. So... Um, that's had us. That's today's discussion. Anyway, but there's plenty more to talk about there. I think. Uh, yeah. yeah, Patty Moriarty. Oh, oh, after. Yeah, no. Oh, I definitely. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the NDIS and and aged care and and how they intersect. But next time, because well, the yeah. government in the budget has now said that people over sixty five can will go off it. Um, right. We'll have to go with the aged care package, not the disability package. And the complaint is the aged care package gives a lot less than the disability package. So. Yeah. Um, that's one area where they've, they're cutting back on costs, one assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're over 65 and disabled, apparently you're not eligible to yeah. be disabled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting. It's interesting. Okay, let's get Patty Moriarty and talk about, uh, talk about other things, energy and mm. things. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. Hey, you mob. It's up to all of us to keep checking in when we're out. Checking in is the quick and easy way to stop the spread of coronavirus and keep protecting our elders, communities and each other. Before you leave home, download the Service Victoria app and keep checking in because checking in keeps us safe and open. Stay deadly, stay safe. A 3CR supporter. Okay, and on the line we've got uh, Paddy Moriarty. Paddy is an adjunct professor, of course, out at Monash. He's uh, he's a, a regular, irregular on this program. And uh, Paddy, a few things I wanted to talk about, but anything you you've been doing that uh, you think we'll find interesting, and we'll tell you if we find it interesting or not. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, a bit of a setup, isn't it? <laughs> recently, I've been dealing with um, the impact of uncertainty in multiple crises and how this affects. Um, you know, the decision making about energy. At present, we have, for instance, um, the coronavirus and uh, climate change. But there's a whole lot of intersecting crises. And uh, what happens when you have a lot of different uh, 
problems that you have to solve is that easy solutions um, can, can conflict with the other aims. For example, um, you may want to have denser cities because it'll save uh, transport energy and therefore greenhouse gases. But on the other hand, it may mean that you that the ability to put to install um, renewable energy on buildings and um, to grow your own food uh, will be uh, decreased. So you've got that that conflict. Quite apart from the fact that people don't want higher densities, mm. <laughs> um, there there are others as well. Um, for example, in the uh, boreal areas, that's uh, northern climates for those of you who don't know, um, one solution to climate change would be um, reforestation or afforestation. The problem is that in areas where there's um, snowfalls is that um, growing trees, uh, trees ref um, absorb more sunlight because they're green than a snow-covered surface does. So what this means is that you do draw down carbon and therefore lower uh, parts per million in the atmosphere, but at the same time you increase the carbon forcing by uh, increasing or by lowering the albedo. That's the, the share of uh, sunlight that gets directly um, uh, reflected back into space unchanged. In other words, you, it helps absorb heat if you have uh, green surfaces rather than uh, snow-white surfaces. Mm. Paddy, speaking of reforestation, I've seen some sort of, you know, uh, general media uh, discussion and, and um, articles about reforestation as being one of the most powerful options to combating climate change. Do you agree? Look, it it can be good in places. For instance, this, uh, this um, feedback effect uh, uh, will only occur in... Um, you know, in uh, cold climates, in the tropics, that won't be the case. Um, planting trees, for instance, if you have good rainfall, fine. If you don't have a lot of rainfall, trees are very good at sucking water out of the ground and pumping it into the atmosphere. Mm. Now, that's good in a... Um, and if you have an urban park, that in fact will lower the temperature in that park uh, because of the evapotranspiration. In areas, in arid or semi-arid areas, what you're doing if you plant a lot of trees is that you're going to lower the water table, which means that the, um, you're not going to get flow into rivers and so on. So it's going to change the hydrology and um, therefore the uh, freshwater ecosystems and everything else. So you have to be pretty careful. You have to take a very general view, an earth system science view. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just, just on that point about uh, about water, overnight I noticed that yesterday the court knocked back um, a government approval for Adani to use lots of arterial water and uh, just it raises the point because um, Dave Sweeney from the ACF has often mentioned this to us, uh, the way mining companies use for free you know, billions and billions of gallons of water, uh, that that must eventually does, does it run out eventually Paddy? I mean there must be a limited amount there surely well it varies from artesian basin to artesian basin but some of the most important ones in the world in the north china plain in a lot of indian areas where they have uncontrolled um india's got about 25 million um electric pumps in some states um, more than half the, the electrical energy is used for pumping water um in the ogala um aquifer in the US as well, these um, water tables are being drawn drawn down. So in other words, you've got a 
pump from greater and greater depths, which means, of course, greater and greater pumping energy. Another thing, of course, with, um, yes, mining... Um, so just go back on that. When you yeah. say they're using water for electricity, is that then being recycled? No, no, or what I'm saying is they, no, what I'm saying is they're using electricity to pump the water for, oh, I see. for okay. agriculture. Oh, right, OK. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. And what this can mean, of course, in certain areas um, where the water tables are, or were fairly close to the surface... Um, uh, artisan wells are running dry because <laughs> somebody next door <laughs> is pumping from from a greater depth. So there are equity considerations in this as well. Mm. Um, of course, pumping at, from a greater depth can, in fact, uh, help you avoid um, surface uh, water pollution, which is a huge problem. In other words, um, a lot of the fresh water, so-called fresh water, is actually heavily polluted and can't be used for uh, drinking and so on. Um, you might know that in um, Bangladesh especially, arsenic poisoning is a big problem for arterial wells. Mm. How, how do they... Is it from farming runoff, Paddy, or um, um, other... It could be from... Uh, uh, well, for the arsenic, I think, could be because they're... Uh, it's being... Uh, the arsenic is being activated by... Um, by being pumped up and also mm-hmm. I think it's probably from deeper levels as well um, yes so uh, I'm not all that sure I do have a file on it but I haven't re- uh, reviewed mm. it recently mm. yeah um, and on that on a similar theme in a sense I noticed the Western Australian government following the Ducan Gorge um, destruction by Rio Tinto a year ago a year when an anniversary this week which is interesting because it's sorry day to day as mm. well um, the Western Australian government has nonetheless refused to give traditional owners power of veto over mining activity, I notice. Um, surely that's something they should have, shouldn't they? They should have a right to say you can't mine our land and destroy it if, you, if we don't want you to. Is this in areas under? This isn't in areas under native title. This is just for historical. Um, this is yeah. Well, it's, it's areas, but I mean it would be areas. Yeah, look, that I, they I, I don't sacred, think we ought to. Yeah. You know, we don't think we ought to destroy our, our heritage like, like that. No, I think <laughs> you know we can uh, learn a lot from these um, very ancient paintings and so on. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think we need to preserve those. Yeah, and just a week ago, of course, we saw the federal government announce that it's going to fund itself a, a gas-fired power station up in New South Wales in the Hunter Valley. Uh, where they happen to have, a, by coincidence, an election last Saturday as well. <laughs> um, but, um, totally unrelated, yeah. Yeah, that's right, totally. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, they, and in fact, the minister said that we have to do something to say that market forces can work. Well, I thought, in fact, they're doing something because market forces have worked and the market says it's absolute waste of money to invest in these things at this stage. Yeah, well, I, I guess um, natural gas is seen as the... Uh, green uh, fossil fuel energy um, because uh, because as you know natural gas has the uh, one four hydrogen to one carbon atoms in, in methane whereas coal is roughly one to one so in other words when you burn coal you get a lot more carbon dioxide for a given amount of energy than you do for um, natural gas uh, the trouble is that methane itself uh, is a fairly potent if short-lived greenhouse gas and um it can, um, in well-controlled um, pumping areas, it shouldn't be a problem escaping. It does escape from old uh, city uh, natural gas mains. Um, in fact, they've done um, 
in uh, Boston, they found a lot of leakage from the uh, ordinary city um, pipeworks and so on. So you, you have to look at that as well. Uh, also, some gas fields actually contain, I think the Natura gas field, in uh, which is a bit exceptional, but in Indonesia, the natural gas was 30% uh, carbon dioxide. Mm. This is before you burn it. <laughs> In other words, some of that uh, material has somehow oxidised to um, to carbon dioxide. Uh, in Norway, where they actually uh, do sequester carbon dioxide, the reason they do that is because to sell um, natural gas, you, you can only have a certain fixed, a small percentage of carbon dioxide. Otherwise, you don't get the right the right heating value. So they're, all they're doing is. Um, it, all, all that the um, carbon sequestration thing there is enabling more fossil fuels to be used, really. <laughs> yeah, there was a media release and around to 3CR um, from a Monash University associate professor saying the project would increase carbon dioxide emissions by 5 million metric tonnes of CO2 over 20 years. This is the uh, this is the natural gas-fired power station. Yeah, the federal government's plan to fund the gas-fired power station. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it, to, to, it, w- it would be less than than an, an equivalent um, for, uh, car, uh, coal power yeah. station. So that's something, I guess. But uh, mm. but yes, uh, it's not the way to go. Um, one and look, uh, I'm. I don't think we have as much, uh, globally, I don't think there's as much renewable energy that we can use as we think there is. Australia is better placed than most places in the world uh, for wind and solar because of our large area and um, land availability. Uh, for instance, you know, there's talk of, you might have heard talk of putting, um, uh, it was called Desert Trek, Desert Tech. It was a German idea to put a false, uh solar cells, farms in the Sahara Desert, and so on. Have you heard of that? I haven't. Yeah, um, it was... Um, I had heard of it, but I don't know much about uh, it. It was the, you know, and the idea was to then to send the electricity by, um, well, undersea cable and so on to, to Western Europe. Uh, several problems there. Uh, if you're building in the... Uh, apart from the coastal North Africa, if you're putting it in the Sahara proper, you have to get water there for several reasons. One... Um, the Sahara Desert is the source of most of the world's um, dust-blown deposits, which which fertilise the Pacific, the Atlantic Ocean, and so on. So you do have a cleaning problem. Mm. Um, dust will not only dirty the photovoltaic cells, but they'll also scour them. So uh, there's real problems there. Also, um, most countries, if you have a look at the world uh, imports and exports of electricity. They're very small. Most countries like to generate their own electricity. Some, you know, they'll accept maybe two or three percent across the border. For instance, in the um, U.S.-Canadian border, they actually send power to each other, depending on who's got the power station closest to the border, and so on. So, I can't see that Western Europe would like to be reliant on North Africa um, for its uh, electricity. I just don't see that happening. So. Mm. <laughs> On that note, Paddy, um, years ago when I was in Libya, uh, I wasn't quite down at the Sahara, but in the arid areas, but just above the Sahara, we went to an area where they were reclaiming the land and they were actually filling a dam with the underground aquifers. Um, and, and Yeah, well, well, that's now... Uh, they now have the... Um, yeah, the, the uh, South Koreans 
built that enormous project which feeds water to the to the coastal cities from the uh, from the aquifer. Um, it's uh, yes, it's fossil water. Um, there's there's a big debate about how long it'll last for. Uh, of course, it means it. I think it straddles the Chad uh, Libyan border, and it, it means that that but Chad won't won't get much. <laughs> mm. And uh, yes, like as I say, like for instance, Saudi Arabia had they actually encouraged uh, wheat production at one stage using their 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 uh, fossil groundwater. Now it's run out, and uh, wheat production's plummeted. And laudable aim of being self-sufficient in grain, because North Africa and the Middle East import a huge amount of their grain, and uh, like electricity, you don't want to have to do that. But um, there's not much option for uh, uh, for North Africa and uh, and or the Middle East. Paddy, I don't know if this is just a bit random, but I've been thinking about how humans are just so reckless with water and we never hear anyone even really talking about it. But they're just like, um, you know, cities like LA are, are just diverting rivers all over the place and, and, um, and then there's all these knock-on effects. And then, you know, we have a city like Melbourne which has the luxury of having these wonderful reservoirs up in the forested hills and then the government's logging them and then we have Adani and, and the... And the um, under the earth uh, uh, um, resource of water there that, that they're just sort of giving away. Why are we, why are we like this? What do you do? Are there more humans than, than the water can sustain at this point or are we just crazy? What's happening? It, it's tricky. Um, a, number of, uh, a number of countries, uh, like a place like Egypt, for instance, most of its water is, 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 is exotic or nearly all its water comes from outside its boundaries. Mm. And um, the United Nations does uh, classify various, country, various countries as to whether they suffer acute water shortage or not. I, I, I can't remember the exact figure. It might be five or 700 uh, cubic metres a year. They're less than that as regarded as acute water shortage. But the number who are uh, is increasing. Of course, in the Middle East and North Africa, what you have, there's now thousands of uh, desal plants, mm. especially on the, uh, on the Red Sea and so on. And... Uh, these, of course, use a fair bit of electricity, uh, so they, the, the energy costs are pretty high. But the, uh, the other problem is that they have a lot of um, uh, very salty water that they have to dispose of. Mm. So there is a pollution problem as well. Yeah. So, yeah. again, it's, it's, it's one solving one problem by causing another problem. That's right. Yeah. That's where we started. Very good at. <laughs> where we started, Paddy, we're going to have to finish. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't even get on to hydrogen, which I, oh. we were going to talk about, but we'll do that again. That's, that's, yeah. that's now in the, in the wings. Yeah. Um, yeah. But look, Paddy, we've got to wind up, but thanks for your time, and um, we'll talk again shortly. In fact, we will talk. We'll talk in a couple of weeks because we're going to get you on to tell us how good we are on Radiothon Week. So, <laughs> okay, yep. And, All right. And, and save your money up till then. Okay, bye, folks. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Paddy. Paddy. Okay. Paddy Moriarty there, who's adjunct professor at Monash and uh, engineering, but he, as you can tell, he specialises in areas that concern us. Gosh, yeah. We've just so many questions that we could ask, but we'll have to go. Um, Anarchist World this week is up next, oh. and we don't want to. We don't want Joe to get angry at us. So, no. Yeah. Good heavens, no. Um, so we'll see you all next week. Next week, transport. Yeah. 
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. 